0: You get in. Uh, I'm on a podcast, dude. Yeah, yeah. I'll be like 20 minutes, half an hour. Cool. All right.
1: You are listening to Service Course by The Cycling Podcast with Lizzie Banks
2: and Tom Wally. Hello, everyone. Tom here. Um, no Lizzie again this month. She is still recovering from her concussion. She's doing great, by the way. She's out uh, back training again. But one of the things you've got to do when you've had a concussion is limit the screen time. And... Um, When we record this show, obviously it involves a lot of screen time, whether it's looking at each other on a Zoom call or writing scripts or making notes or doing interviews. So we're going to rest Lizzie for another month, but she will be back, I'm certain, next month. God, I miss you, Lizzie. Come back soon, please. Um, This episode, well, it's it's a funny one, really. It's a bit of a mixed bag. So one of the things I want to do to start with is to talk about positioning. I mean, later in the show, we're going to talk to someone who knows a lot about that, which Dan Bigham, who's got a new book out, um, knows everything there is to know about being aero. But the reason I want to talk about positioning is this. Obviously, we've seen the UCI have banned a couple of positions. I was, you know, we talked about that a little bit anyway, and, and I thought we'd covered it. But then come the tour of Turkey, Alexander Richardson from alpecin Phoenix, got disqualified for a riding position. And I thought, I remember that name. I remember that rider. And if you cash your mind back to 2015, it was a glorious time. It was a time when groups of seven or more people could walk around together. Justin Bieber was riding high in the charts with What Do You Mean? No, I don't remember either. It was a great time to be alive and yours truly here um, was still reasonably fit. Uh, I was in the Finsbury Park road race uh, in October 2015. It was the end of the season in the Eastern Road Race League. I was feeling pretty good. And there was a rider in that race who was constantly using this sort of puppy paws, hands draped over the bars position, no matter whether he was in the peloton or not. It was a bit of a strange race. At the end of it, the commissaire held on to a lot of licences because About 20 riders had been disqualified for various uh, infractions, whether that was being on the wrong side of the road or illegal riding positions. Anyway, that rider with the illegal position or the position that I didn't think was suitable was Alexander Richardson. And I remember at the end of the race, um by the way, my race ended in a crash four kilometres from the from home. I think I was in fourth wheel and the guy in third crashed and uh, pushed us all into a bush and that was it, race over. I was feeling really good as well. It was a good chance for me, in that one. Anyway, listen, that rider that got disqualified, one of the riders that got disqualified was Alexander Richardson. And I remember after the race I I confronted him and I said, I, oh, you, you know, you can't go around like that. Anyway, following on from that, um I kept an eye on this guy's results and I noticed he was racing all over the place and getting some Incredible uh, results and moving rapidly through the categories. And if you don't know Alex's story, he um, is a former stockbroker, and essentially he um, used, I think, the money that he'd, he'd made and uh, to, to fund his his cycling career. And I think it was in 2018 he went on to win the Lincoln GP, which is you know a huge domestic race here in the UK. And following on from that, he um, he turned professional. So he he rode with, with OnePro in 2018, but they folded and he rode Lincoln GP. Um, I think he rode it as an independent. In 2019, he was with Canyon uh, DHB. But the last two years, he's been with um, Alpus in Phoenix. That could have been me. It could have been me. It definitely couldn't. Anyway, his story... Um, Obviously, it brings the positioning thing home, but also I was reminded of his story. And you know, he pulled out all the stops, used, his, used the funds he had to um, to really make himself into a rider. And I uh, earlier in the week I was speaking to Michael Hutchinson, all round good guy, a guy I love chatting to, and um, I mentioned the story to him. I wanted to talk about positioning, but I mentioned the story of Alexander Richardson to him, and I likened it to that of Dolph Lundgren in Rocky IV. The caveat being that Alexander is clearly not evil. Like
3: Dolph Lundgren was.
2: Ivan Drago, call him by his proper name in the film. Oh, I was going to mention a film. I mean, you haven't seen any films, have you? Uh, no,
3: I've watched loads of films. I've been doing nothing so you're locked down but watch films. Obviously, uh, Rocky Four? No. Oh, come on. <laughs> Who's seen Rocky Four? It's got a four after it. I would have to do like the first three.
2: Rocky Four is the only one you need to see. It's the, uh, basically, Dolph Lundgren is like this kind of, he's the communist poster boy boxer sort of things but he's like no,
3: I know who he is
2: you know who he is right so, but, but basically they, he was in they,
3: the first cycling magazine I ever bought in
2: 1989 Dolph Lundgren was in what Squeak, squeaked
3: Tom in a high pitched voice of incredulity
2: God, well, I, I, look, I didn't know this was going to go there but you might as well it's not like the tapes rolling so you might as well tell me the story uh,
3: as I recall he got in trouble for making a film that featured South African military hardware but for some reason, the magazine ran this with a picture of him posing with a mountain bike because he was some sort of a mountain bike brand ambassador or something peculiar. So it was a magazine, what was it called? Was it Bicycle Action? Long since defunct. I think that's great. Bi- I think it was Bicycle Action, which I bought when I bought my first mountain bike in the late 1980s. Well, I didn't get Hutch on to talk
2: about films. You wouldn't do that if you were sane. I got Hutch on to talk about um, positioning and his quest for the perfect position. Now, you've probably heard some of these stories before. I certainly have. I just enjoy the craziness of of how Hutch went about trying to find the perfect position on the bike. So here he
3: is talking about positioning. I don't think it was ever insane. I think it was always cool and calm and rationally figured out. Even the bit where I made a little plasticine model of myself and built my own wind tunnel in the living room. I built a wind tunnel with like a fan I bought from Ryman's and lots of cardboard. And then I made like a little plasticine me. And it worked. But I'd got like um, a was skateboard. It to scal-
2: was it to scale?
3: It was all to scale, but it was about, oh, I don't know, probably one-tenth scale. Um, and at that point, I hadn't really got my handle on Reynolds number. So even if this had worked, I would have got the wrong answer. But that was fine. I kind of I was saved for myself. because. And I then got like a bag of sugar or something on a set of kitchen scales. And a, a piece of string ran from the skateboard through a pulley to lift the... Um, I'm miming all this out. I mean, there's clearly not much help on a podcast, but I'm doing all the gestures to lift the bag of sugar on and off the scales when you turn the wind on. I mean, it, it conceptually worked in that you could detect aerodynamic differences, but no. Uh, but like I said, that seemed perfectly sane and rational to me. Um, the thing is, like I started, I mean, I've always been mainly interested in, in time trial position and fast positions. I mean, I've never really taken that much of an interest in trying to come up with a position for riding across Europe um and like when i started racing was kind of the early 2000s you kind of had to guess nobody was going to wind tunnels in those days um i mean of the kind of the the tour de france field probably one or two of them had been in a wind tunnel at some point in their lives um chris boardman had been in a wind tunnel but that was like once eight years before so none of that happened you were left basically guessing um and at that point i figured out that well if cda is drag factor multiplied by frontal area. Well, I'm never going to work out the drag factor without a wind tunnel, but I can work out the frontal area. So I just got, set myself up in front of a mirror on my turbo trainer and just worked at getting my frontal area down. Um, I mean, the next step to that was the bright idea that if I got a photograph of myself and printed it nice and big on a piece of photographic paper and then cut it out, cut out all the bits that weren't me, and weighed the bit of paper, that would give me a really good frontal area. This was at a point where I imagine a pixel count was a perfectly plausible thing for someone who ran Photoshop and knew what they were doing, but I didn't. So I did it this way. This is kind of the analog way of doing it. I was quite proud of it, so I would thank you to stop sniggering. Um,
2: so, 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 so you literally, you were taking pictures of yourself in different positions, cutting them out, and, and you were, it was the weight difference you were looking at. Yes. So,
3: so how, how i told you did, to stop sniggering this
2: is good this is good how much did your fastest position weigh is that is,
3: i have I just, no idea i'm the, I'm a, I'm the memory is, man I don't I just, know.
2: i'm just wondering whether there's like an equation whether you could kind of equate the weight of your
3: well you, of you can because the weight of the paper is is going to be representative of your frontal area so that's just the A and CDA. So if you assume, given I could not figure out what my CD, my drag factor was without a wind tunnel, you assume your drag factor is one, and then you just multiply it by A. And in this instance, the A is the weight of the paper. So it's not the actual number, but it will scale perfectly effectively. So the, the theory behind it is not as insane as you're trying to make it out to be.
2: And then, so from there, and you, so you, you, I mean, this, this plasticine horch that you were testing in, a, in your homemade wind tunnel... Tell me how that translated to then to you on the bike then. It I mean, didn't. It
3: didn't. didn't. That was a complete waste of time. That was just well, a way to that was just a way to spend the autumn.
2: Well, what about the what about the, the paper cutouts then? That work, the paper,
3: that that works.
2: Yeah, they literally we'd literally you'd literally copy that position and, then, and we'd see it on the bike then.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, and it's I mean, there are people like BC still use a basic uh, still uses a, a slightly more advanced version of this as a, a really kind of basic position tuning tool to this day they, they're they using a kind of green screen and a pixel count uh but it's the same thing and actually in the era i was doing it the resolution was probably higher doing it with a photograph on a piece of photographic paper than i would have got running it in photoshop
2: well we're going to hear more from hutch uh throughout this episode i'll sprinkle him throughout um i've kind of got hutch to thank for this uh the next conversation that I'm going to have actually. So I noticed that Hutch commented on something on Twitter. I think it was shared by uh, Vern Pitt, excellent cycling journalist. Um, And it concerned uh, Xavier Disley, who uh, runs AeroCoach. Now, I don't know if you've seen aero coach uh they do a lot of things around aerodynamics they are the official aero partner of um, assos Quebecca in the world tour uh, but they also also work with you know amateur riders um they also make some very very interesting products um they're the sort of brand actually if you're watching um a race and teams are using unbranded products on their bikes often they are aero coach products um they make some uh, amazing stuff but um I wanted to speak to Xavier Disley because he um, put several different, um, with the UCI banning positions uh, in mind, he put several positions uh, to an aero test. Um, And I wanted to speak to him about that uh, because he got some very, very interesting data. But first, I asked him to tell me all about Aero Coach.
1: So, so AeroCoach Coach is really it's a, it's an aerodynamic company where we provide uh, consultancy for people. Uh, we do work with uh, teams and national federations, um, aiming for kind of things like the Olympics and, and you know grand tours and stuff like that. Um, but we also work with the everyday riders. So, and, and that's really something that's really important to us. Um, Whether that's doing aero positioning work or whether that's developing equipment and things um, that everyone can use. So we try and make sure that that our stuff isn't so elitist that no one has access to it. Um, So whether that's, you know, uh, keeping costs down and trying to do all the manufacturing in-house, which we which we try to do as much as we can. Um, uh, Or whether it's, you know, working with people one on one, you know, doing aero positioning work for people. That's actually quite a cost effective way of making you faster. Um, and you know you could spend ten thousand pounds on a new bike, but if your position isn't very good on it, then that's not really going to be a, a great investment. Whereas if you could have like a a bike fit, or if you you know maybe a slightly more expensive error test session or something like that, but figure your position out, your body's eight percent of the drag, so that's going to make a big impact. Um, and that's really like the focus of Aero coaches to make riders faster, and we do that in a, in a number of different ways. Um, some of the other things that we do, uh, um, we try to provide. Free data and free information for people to help them out, um, which is kind of linked to some of the products that we sell. So for example, we do some rolling resistance testing. Um, and uh, that's to help people be more informed about what tires will work best with our wheels, but also with, with everyone else's stuff. And that's kind of like a part of the R&D that we do in the background, um, where if we're developing a new product, for example, a wheel, we need to know what tires are good, so we have to do all this work anyway and we might as well publish it and let everyone know um so we have a we have like a wide variety of things we also run races we do coaching and and things so um you know there's 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 a a wide scope of stuff but everything is around trying to trying to speak people
2: up (laughs) talking about uh uh, products then that that you've made I, i know um that a lot of people, you know, can't talk necessarily about who they work with and stuff. But is there is there anything that you can tell us about people that you work with at all?
1: Yeah, so I mean with the official era partner for Quebec or Assos. Um, so I'll be I'll be shouting the loudest about them. Um it's a great team actually. And we've um, uh, we came on board this year um and look forward to doing more and more stuff with them. Really our role with the team is to um again to help speed riders up, but um, that comes with um a variety of different ways, whether it's working with some of the sponsors to help select the right kind of equipment that they need to use, or whether it's um, working with the riders on things like positioning. Um, we also provide them with some products to um, to help speed them up. So officially with the Aeropartner for Quebec or Essos, um, But we also sell things to other teams. And people may have noticed some unbranded equipment being used, particularly in time trials um, in the World Tour. Um, and, you know, with, that's something that we've done for a little while now. But um, because... I think it's, it's interesting, really, like it seems to me like the industry um, is focusing, is it, moving more towards things like gravel and, uh, and road and, and that kind of stuff. And so if uh, some of the bigger companies aren't doing as much R&D uh, on very specific scenarios like time trial, um, that's where we can help out and, you know, we can provide people with products that, that fit their requirements there um, because we have the flexibility and the nimbleness to be able to, um design design cool stuff because that's you know <laughs> we all race all of the all the people who work for um Eric coach we all ride bikes and um you know the stuff that we that we make we use um and so if we're making something um quite niche it's kind of because we're going to use it as well.
2: <laughs> well what's it like then um working with Assas quebec i mean I, I hear a lot about these partnerships around it and they're always different depending on who the who the, the different people are working with each other um What's your relationship like? What sort of stuff do you do? Do you do with them? And and how much? I guess sort of how much of it do you do? You know, I mean, presumably their team aren't in which every week in your in your wind tunnel or whatever. <laughs> do you know what I mean?
1: No. So um, obviously we've we've you know we've come up against it with recent restrictions around travel, and we have to be quite careful that we're not really allowed to. Go out of the country nor have we done for you know a year or so um so the stuff that we're doing with them um we've done some uh, remote testing so we've done some error test sessions with riders um which is really really it works quite well we've done that before and we do that with um, national federations as well uh, we can't do that with other teams it's just kebeca assets that get that um and uh, and that's been that's been really helpful um so we will you know maybe send them some um, some error products and uh, the riders will be able to test them out in sessions and um, over time, you know, get them more and more aerodynamic. It's not just about aerodynamics. There's there's more to it than that, but th- that does help. Um, we're also working with some of the sponsors uh, with some prototype equipment behind the scenes. So because we do um, third-party testing um, for manufacturers and have done for a while, it means that the sponsors now have access to that kind of independent testing. So If they want to because everyone does their own testing but it's quite nice to have that validated by by someone external so for example we will be provided with um, and we've got shipments of stuff arriving all the time where um, some of the sponsors will send us something we'll give our feedback um, and if that helps inform later stuff that they do then then great Um, so we kind of we can kind of act as a, a bit of a kind of a test hub in a way that the service course might not have the time or the 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 technology to be able to do so um so we act from from that perspective uh, we also provide um race analysis and and sort of pre-race analysis and things so if riders are looking for equipment set up for a particular race um, then you know we have information on the kind of things that they should be using for particular course profiles whether that's time trial or road um and those sorts of things like really really help um, takes the focus away from having to make those decisions or at least it gives the coaches and the mechanics a more of, a more kind of a, a greater overview because if they know right well doing this is five watts slower than doing this then the riders can say that's okay I'm happy to take that five watts because it'll you know be more comfortable or I'll find it better at the end of the race or something like that so um, providing an extra, an extra sounding board to help people make those decisions is quite useful
2: that's interesting I'm, I'm wondering about sort of um that's that kind of advice that you give then about certain particular races i mean is there an example of a particular race or a particular stage in a race where you've said well your bike should be set up like this um
1: you know so we so the recent one was quite interesting was the tour of the basque country uh where they had a tt which was pretty bonkers i don't know if you saw it but it's yeah started up a big old hill and uh finished up an even bigger one um and gearing was quite good for that one so we were looking at the riders um power outputs and aerodynamic drags and we can work out the right kind of gearing that will get them up the climb but also there was a big long descent on it so we needed to make sure they had the right gearing to attack that and they needed to be able to um be able to shift the front mech so you need to have like a big front ring but a small enough little ring you know and and what 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 could they get away with that would still give them the gearing range they needed along with things like equipment selection. So whether that's, you know, running a slightly lighter front wheel or whether that's using, um, you know, different pressure, depending on the road surface or the heat and um, pacing profiles as well is quite useful. So that the riders know actually they can hold back at, you know, with a couple of K before that final climb and they lose maybe a couple of seconds because they're, you know, 10, 20 watts lower than what they would be, but they can put that on in the final climb and they'll get three, four seconds out of that. That's actually quite useful um, and something that the, the directors can use in the team car.
2: Do you know what? The, the idea of that makes me a bit nervous. Like the idea of having to tell a mechanic, like you've got to set the bike up like this. and Presumably there's someone in between relaying that information.
1: We're, we're not ordering anyone around. Right? So we, we, we're, le- we're literally just there as a sounding board, just trying to um, provide the advice that, that we can give. Because at the end of the day, the riders and mechanics have a lot of experience and they'll know that, you know, um, they'll, have, they'll have some good feelings about doing certain things and, and other feelings about other ones. But, um, but we're there just to provide a, a, as, as independent sounding board as we, as we possibly can
2: someone like you i always wonder is it is it hard to watch cycling with someone like you i mean you i mean and i speak to people like you know uh dr hutch for instance and i know like he, you know he's got a particular you know he watches cycling through a particular pair of goggles sort of lenses you know what i mean and i wonder if you're the same is it, it must be a nightmare to watch cycling with you right
1: watching people get things wrong do you mean yeah yeah i think that the it's it depends who it is doesn't it like it's everyone's an armchair expert at the end of the day like i'm sure everyone will have will be shouting at the tv like what are you doing or why are you doing this but then that makes it exciting like i've always been a fan of cycling and you know uh it's yeah i i find those kind of situations more more amusing than frustrating so no i love watching it <laughs> it's good fun the cycling podcast is supported by science in sport science in sport Fueled by science.
2: Thanks as ever to science in sport, and actually, science in sport are going to get mentioned again later in the episode uh, when I speak to Dan Bigham. Um, Dan was talking about the uh, the menthol range and and cooling because he talks in the interview um, about working with Canyon SRAM on their e-racing performance and some of the testing that he did in. In Zwift, in virtual worlds. It's fascinating stuff, so stay tuned for that. Um, But Science in Sport, thank you as ever for sponsoring the Cycling Podcast. I think they've been with us now, I think it's pretty much five years to the day. Um, And I think it's about five years to the day, almost since... I've been with the Cycling Podcast, so um, yeah, we both came on board about the same time. If you want 25% off your next Science in Sport order, then you can use the offer code, which is SISCP25. That's SISCP25. And all you want to do is go to scienceinsport.com to put that in. All right, and back to Xavier. Uh, We got to talking about the wheels that AeroCoach make, which are... Regard has been phenomenally fast and uh, you will certainly have seen them being used in world tour races.
1: So one of the things we did was um, when we started up doing products, we tried to fill niches and try to figure out where there's gaps in the market. And there, in, in our opinion, there was a big gap between, for something that was so boisterously ridiculous that people, if we made something that fast, everyone would have to use it. Um, so we decided to make a front wheel that was just crazy deep. Um, with a couple of funny features on it, so it's got a weird aero hub, and it's got um, a little uh, bit of tech in the valve in the, um, the rim, which allows us to help hide the valve. Um, both of which save minute amounts, but make it you know add up to make it quicker than other things. But one of the things that we did before um, developing the wheel itself was um, the, the worked on tires. So we know that tires are really important, and so. The first thing we did was a big batch of data trying to work out what the fastest tyres were, what kind of properties they had, what should we recommend. And we actually built the well, the first generation of wheels were built around um, a particular brand of tyre, which was a, at the time it was a Victoria Corsa Speed G1. Um, and we started with that as the leading edge because that's the first thing that hits the wind is your front tyre. And, uh, and built the wheel back from there um, which t- turned out pretty well um, and then the second generation of wheels that we do um, are a little bit more tyre agnostic so you don't have to run a course of speed for them to be fast um, which is important because tyre technology these days t- has taken off massively you know with tubeless you know having a surgence and then maybe a, uh, you know clinchers having a resurgence again to try and over overtake them we find that, we find that absolutely fascinating and Um, So we're constantly doing tire testing to try and understand what we should be recommending to people and what will be the the best choice for them. So if we're trying to recommend a tire for a triathlete, that's completely different from something we would recommend for someone doing a a short prologue or or a short CT, for example.
2: Well it's interesting that we've kind of ended up uh, on tires before we've got to positioning but actually tires is something I'm really keen to talk about because you've just mentioned well first of all you you mentioned tire agnostic which I think is a phrase I'm going to use again and again and again uh, I'm definitely a tire agnostic but um obviously you know we've seen um the resurgence of clinchers and we've seen clinchers uh winning big races again um the kinetic equipped have been have been using them do you have a viewpoint on what's fastest and what's best in terms of tires and, and the, the type, well, the, the t- type of tire?
1: So, so we get this question a lot, and I think that um, the so the the thing to bear in mind is that if you have, and there aren't very many of them, but if you do have a tire like, and a good example is a Victoria Corsa Speed which I'll go on about, it's it's quite good, right? It's a good tubeless, it's the fastest tubeless tire that we we tested so far, but you can run it. It's the same exact model that you run either with an inner tube or tubeless. And what that does is it allows you to very easily compare the difference between a tubeless tire and a clincher tire because you can put an inner tube in it or you can put sealant in it. Now, when we do that, if you use a latex inner tube, and as long as you're using less than 30 mil of sealant, which is enough to seal it, then it's the same speed. If you try and compare something different, let's say a Continental GP 5000, the clincher version of that tire is a different construction than the tubeless version of the tire. And actually, the clincher version is a little bit thinner because it doesn't have to have the bead to seal it. Um, and it's marginally, and I say marginally, quicker than the tubeless version of the GP 5000. Um, so there really isn't anything in it. And if you, so if you have a tire, let's say you go out and you have a tubeless tire and you put in a latex inner tube in it, it's going to perform the same as it would do if you'd put tubeless sealant in it. Um, and in terms of what's fastest, generally speaking, I mean, if you, we've got a load of tire information that we, that we publish. And if you look down the list, the faster tires tend to be more clincher specific, but it's really mainly because the material needed to create a clincher tire is less than what you'd need to make a tubular tire and if you have a tire and you just chuck a load of material at it then it's going to be heavier and it's going to be a little bit slower from a rolling resistance perspective but in in, but if you're trying to compare tires you really have to compare a tire on its own merit so it's not just a case that tubeless is faster or clincher is faster it's whether the exact tire that you're looking at is faster or slower and i think that's something that people miss is that people try to generalize tubeless in one big bag And clincher in one bag and you can't really do it because there are some very, very slow clincher tires and there are some very, very fast clincher tires. And the same goes for tubeless. There are some absolute terrible tubeless tires and there are some very fast ones. So it makes it a minefield for the consumer. I do realize that and it's annoying. Um, But that's why we try to publish stuff. I mean, most of the stuff we publish is all about race tires. So we don't really go down to kind of commuting tires and things like that. But we try to help out as much as we can because I do realize how annoying it
3: is.
2: Well, it's just—I mean, it's the same thing with cycling. It's just—it's just about trends, you know. The pros start doing it, so we must—we just have to jump on board. I mean, in, in that sense, actually, yeah, a bit of—I always like to get people like yourself to do a bit of um, sort of crystal ball gazing, really. So, I mean, before we get on to talk about positioning, where are tires going to go? I mean, now that you know clinchers are having this third resurgence or whatever, whatever it is now, is that going to be the future? We all going to be switching back to clinchers? All the teams?
1: Do you know what? I think it's actually going to be driven by the wheel manufacturers who are going towards hookless. Hookless is easier to do with a carbon rim than a a proper rim hook. I say proper, than a a rim hook that'll allow a clincher be. We do, um, the wheels that we make are like a normal hook. So you can run a clincher tire or a tubeless tire, but it's a little bit cheaper and it makes the wheel a little bit lighter if you go hookless. And I think that as some of these bigger wheel companies start getting bought up by, you know, even bigger companies for investment, and they start looking for areas to, um, you know, improve their margin, going hookless is one of those areas. Because if you make a lighter wheel, it'll appeal more to the general consumer. um, And what that will result in, unless you have some kind of a weird mid hook design, which is kind of possible to run some clincher tires on, people will go tubeless just because that's what the wheels are gonna be doing. Now, an example of where that isn't the case is the new Roval wheels from Specialized where um, I think no one's really figured out why they're not tubeless specs, even though they very much look like it. (laughs) So uh, I think that if manufacturers, and this is my crystal ball prediction, right? So if manufacturers go with hookless design, then the tires are gonna have to follow it because you won't be able to sell people clincher tires if their wheels don't take it.
2: All right then, it's time to get very very technical. I know we've been technical already, but we're going to get very technical now. Um the reason I got Xavier on is I wanted to talk I wanted him to talk you through um the results of his aero test when he was testing all these different positions on the road and what he found. So here he is explaining what they did and what the results were.
1: So the, so the first thing we found was um, we, we got, uh, Richard was our test rider. So we got Richard to hold the hoods um, and kind of not, not bolt upright, but he kind of bent his arms a little bit. Um, and he was on an aero bike. Uh, it was a rim brake chart propel, um, which is his aero bike. Is, is his and he had a CDA of 0.277 meters squared. So remember I said earlier, 0.30 is kind of normal. He had a, like a you know, close fitting jersey and he had a nice helmet on and things like that. Uh, specialized evades that's a pretty good one and he had aero socks and and stuff so 0.277 pretty standard on the better end of of, of normal um, when he moved into the drops now on a road bike you move into the drops and it decreases your torso angle so it means your torso becomes more horizontal to the ground and on a road bike that is generally quite good for aerodynamics on a TT bike it's a bit different but on a road bike decreasing your torso angle as a general rule is something that will speed you up and we found that it dropped his CDA down to 0.265 so from 0.277 it went down to 0.265 which if we take a kind of pro level speed of 45 kilometers an hour means that he could travel at the same speed 45k doing 14 watts less if he was traveling slower 30k an hour it's more like four watts
2: I mean that's huge. Um, so, I I just did a, an FTP test and I I put I think I put eight watts on my FTP, and that's taken about <laughs> like six months worth of work. You know what I mean? Yeah,
1: yeah. And it's and it's it's worse for people who've been you know pros for ages and things, and they're just trying to achieve the same fitness each year rather than trying to necessarily necessarily improve from year on year. And 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 this is I think one of the things that if you're regardless of your goals, like whether whether you're going out for a ride with mates or whether you're racing or whatever then if you can do something that will drop your power required to travel at speed by 10 Watts, then that's massive. And you know, I'd rather, okay, fine. You should do the training as well. I'm not saying you should sit on the sofa and eat chocolate all day, but, um, but yeah, dropping the, dropping the power required is pretty good. So, so that was drops. The next thing we did was, um, uh, what we call like a, an aero hood's position. So that's when you're holding the hoods, but you hold your arms parallel. So you're really bent over. Um, Kind of that, that kind of right, it's
2: that kind of right angle in the elbow, yeah. isn't it, in the forearm? You know?
1: Exactly, yeah. And what we found, and we find this a lot, is that that is actually faster than being in the drops. So his drops position was 0.265, uh, 0.265 and the the aero hood's position was 0.247. So if we compare that to his relaxed hood's position, from the, the, the early baseline, baseline position, that's um, 35 watts that he'd be saving traveling at um, the same speed, uh, 45 kilometers now, that is. Um, it's less than that again. If you're um, small, like sort of ten watts or so, if you're uh, traveling at thirty k an hour, um, and then we started doing all the UCI band positions. So, um, well, at the moment uh, we thought there was only one UCI band position, but that has now changed, doesn't it? So the first one we did was the the puppy paws forearm riding thing. Now, one of the reasons why that's good is because obviously it looks like a TT position, you're getting your arms narrower, but also if you can rest your forearms, depending on where you're resting your forearms on the bars, it allows you to move your elbows a little bit further forwards than you would do if you're holding your hoods and moving your elbows forward helps decrease your torso angle. So that was what I was saying before, decrease the torso angle is good. Um, and that gave a CDA of 0.243, which was um, about four and a half watts better than the aero hoods position at 45k an hour. So it is faster. Um, the thing is, when you're doing that position, it's a bit it's a bit variable in terms of what you do with your hands. So if you have your hands like drooping forwards and like presenting quite a big, you know, block to the wind, that's not so good. But then trying to hold a pretend aero bar position with your hands a bit in line with your forearms is nigh on impossible. Your arms, your forearms might slip on the tops and things. I mean, I I'm I'm in favor of that not being needed to be used in in competition. I think that's fine. Um, I don't think it's necessary because it's not it's not like a, it's not a game changer in terms, it's not you know, saving you 50 watts or something. Um, and it is definitely providing with less control on the bike because your hands are just in, in free air. Um, and the races that we organize, if it's a road bike category and you do that, you get disqualified. And we've been doing that for ages. So uh, the next thing we did was um, what we call the, um, uh, the lever hook position. So that's where, and it's something that you see riders do on the track and have been doing on the track for a little while now is where you wrap your hands around the levers so that you've got um, a bit of forearm behind where the hoods are, but your hands are kind of wrapped forwards. And again, this is a method used to move your elbows forward to help decrease the torso angle. However, because you're presenting a flat hand to the wind, and also your elbows aren't really kind of flat, they're not parallel, you end up having like your elbows raised a little bit. It's kind of hard to describe, but... Um, well, you
2: do, if, if you ride that position, I mean, you, you do, I mean, we've actually seen bars that sort of mimic this position now, haven't we, that's starting to come in. But I mean, with, with that position, you, you, you have to consciously pull your elbows in because they are going to naturally flare out, aren't they, if you don't do exactly. that? Exactly.
1: And, and we found that that was pretty much the same as the hoods position. So you're not really gaining anything and you are definitely losing out in terms of, you know, control on the bike. Um, and we, you know, we, we wasn't surprised about that, and it's not really something that, I mean, on the track, it's you, you, you there are no hoods, so people wrapping their hands forwards to get their elbows forward is probably going to be, well, a little bit better depending on what handlebars you do. Going back to the era coach stuff, we actually designed a bar to allow people to hold a kind of pseudo hoods position to allow that anyway. Um, which uh um which again is is you know, improving your body position, which is eight percent of the drag anyway. Um and then the last one which I thought was in, was interesting was that we um people have started bending their hoods inwards um to have like a kind of narrow position this, there.
2: This seems to whenever we talk about trends, this seems to be the latest trend that's sweeping the Peloton, 'cause it's it seems to be more and more um some really uncomfortable looking positions as well, mm. I think.
1: I think that the, so, so the thing that we've, and, uh, that we've we've seen in the past with this is that if you just bend your legs, so imagine you're holding the hoods in a relaxed position and you're kind of like sat a bit upright. If you bend the hoods inwards at that point, your elbows go out. If your elbows go out, that's slower. So if you bend your hoods in, then yes, you'll get your hands closer together and you're getting closer to that kind of puppy paw, arms touching each other position, But if you do it and your elbows go out, you slow yourself down. So if you're going to bend your lever hoods in, then you're going to need to make sure that it doesn't cause your elbows to flare outwards. But yes, it could be faster. Uh, And we found that Rich's CDA was 0.245. And if we go back to the um, aero hoods position, it was 247. So it's a little bit quicker. It's a couple of watts faster than... Uh, as you'd imagine, because he was he was keeping his elbows in, and we just moved everything a little bit narrower. Um, so it was faster, but the the risk you run if you bend your hoods in is that when you start to fatigue, you lose it completely, and your elbows go out, and you end up being slower overall. So as with all of these things, they are quite contorted positions, and it's quite you know it's quite difficult to hold them a lot of the time, and so your uh, your overall speed is going to be determined by what you can hold over a particular length of time. So if you hold a crazy, squeezy position and then have to sit on the tops because your back hurts, then that's going to be slower, right? So the best thing to do is to try and find a kind of sustainable middle house rather than just shooting for the theoretical lowest CDA or aerodynamic drag that you can. Um, You know, that's the, the best thing to do is to try and find something maintainable and sustainable. But of course, you know, if you can hold those positions, yes, it's faster. Um, and I find it interesting actually that, like you know, the, the, the UCI have cracked down on the lever hooks position where you're wrapping your hands around the front of the, the brake levers, um, because I don't know what they're going to do on the track with that. You know, are they going to tell people off for um, wrapping their hands around the bars because it results in less control, or are they not going to be so worried because if you hit a bump, you're not going to hit the brakes? Because that's one of the problems with the lever hooks position. You hit bump in the road, if you're on disc brakes, you lock up both wheels and you're going over. <laughs>
2: um it's an interesting one isn't it? i mean so i've got i've actually got a follow-up question on that actually which i'll which i'll come to um but obviously so we've we've we're thinking that the the, the aero hood's position is the best all-round position it it's it's control and it's and it's fast um But perhaps it's not a position that we think of as much when when we're doing our bike fit. Perhaps that's not the position we're trying to optimize. So is that something that we you would advise us when having a bike fit? You know, if you want to go fast, optimize how your bike fits for a for an aero hoods position. But also, um, is there a perfect aero hoods position as well? Because you know, there's 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 a little bit of a spectrum of of how you can how you can be in an aero position you have know, your elbows f- absolutely flat to the bars or absolutely raised you know what's what what works best
1: so we, we tend to find that if you have a parallel arm position then that's good because that presents as little as possible to the to the air so it reduces the a component of cda um and as long as you have your torso low then that's what i mean the torso is is kind of the main thing so if you have your if you have your handlebars level with your saddle and you hold parallel arms, your torso is going to be quite high. So you do need to have a low enough position, um, uh, sorry, a low enough handlebar that holding parallel arms is going to result in a good torso angle. Um, but you know, it's if you're, it depends on your goals, really. I mean, I'll give myself as an example, right? So I've been doing some time trials recently on my road bike. Um, there's a road bike national
2: series that. What's we're your uh, what's your ten mile time? Come on, on the road bike. Um, uh, your your best 10 mile time oh 1920 something i think you've done you've done sub 20 so yeah that's that's an achievement well done well the goal
1: the goal this year for me is to try and go sub 20 on the road bike so i've been trying to do some error positioning work to see if i can achieve that um and i've actually got the setup that i've got is specifically designed for like road bike tts so the bike that i'm using and the position that's on it isn't really something that i'll go out and do a three-hour ride on a sunday on i just take it out for tts and back in the day you know when people were doing their time trials on road bikes you did have a specific time trial bike which was a bike with drop handlebars right but it was the one that you used for tts because it gave you the position you wanted um so uh so yeah if, the, if that's your goal then okay fine yeah you optimize for that arrow hoods position but if your goal is a three-hour road race then you need to kind of you need to wind it back a little bit, and you need to make sure that when you're climbing or when you're sat off the arrow hoods that you're not going to be still making your lower back hurt or making your triceps hurt or something. Because I've got to say, holding these mad positions is not easy. Um, and you know, I've done—I mean, I did a 25 mile TT with you know crazy positions, you know, some years ago um, on a road bike, and it was murder. And you know, these riders that can hold it. In the UK, people used to do these things for, you know, 100 miles, 12 hours, whatever. Um, and it's, you know, full, full respect to them because I can barely do it for 10 miles now. Um, but, uh, but yeah. So, so I think that it, it does, it does depend a lot on your goals. But if you've got a rider, let's say who wants to go for a breakaway and they know that if they optimize everything about their position, that they can, um, record, you know, improve their speed by 1k an hour or something, that could be the difference between the elastic snapping and it not or people allowing you to go. Um, So there'll be situations, I'm sure, where riders will be taking a particular bike on a particular day because they know that it's breakaway day and that they can deal with the fatigue and pain that will come with holding a mad position, but it'll be worth it.
2: Well, final question. So we've already seen um, that that we've got got the banned positions from the UCI and we've seen riders sort of trying to figure out a way around that, you know, not not by copying the positions, but finding alternatives. You know, we've we've talked about the the sort of lever hooks type position. Um we've also seen, as you've mentioned, uh narrower handlebars, uh levers, you know, levers being turned in. And I'm just wondering, again, this is probably another bit of crystal ball gazing, but how the industry itself, in the products it makes, will try and compensate for these banned positions. And we're gonna are we going to see, for instance, like um A front end of a bike that can lower itself we're going to see narrower bars with much more flared drops what 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 do you think we'll see
1: so i think that because the uci is quite can be quite fluid with their rule changes um the bigger companies are going to be a little bit reticent to pump development time into it so it'll be people like us who will be able to make changes like making a dropper (laughs) handlebar um or or or, you know making a, a flared bar or something like that i think that um Again, you are largely depending on where you are positioned in the industry. You are largely governed by what the pros are going to use. So, if you are going to invest a lot of money into something, I mean, there are already handlebars out there that are pretty wacky looking that have got some, you know, quite interesting ideas in terms of how you can hold them and and stuff. Um, aimed very much at the consumer and not the pro. Um, because it won't get traction in the pro world. So really, you'll probably what you'll probably end up seeing is people doing like a halfway house between the two. Um, but if the UCI are going to um, make more clarity, because it's, it's pretty obvious what the UCI don't want, right, which is dangerousness. So if you're making a handlebar, which circumvents rules, but is dangerous, then you're throwing your money down the drain, right? Because that's <laughs> they're, they're going to ban it, and it's going to be pointless. You might make a splash, and you might, you know, say, "Oh, we did this, and the UCI banned it, whatever." But it's not going to be a good business decision. Um, but it seems as though they're not happy on people using their forearms as a point of support on the bar. So that's definitely something to kind of kick out the um, the the cutting room if you're <laughs> the cutting room floor, put on the cutting room floor if you uh, if you're thinking about doing it. In my opinion, at least. Um, so, yeah, I think we'll end up seeing bars with, um, you know, without giving too much away about what we're doing, <laughs> more more ergonomic designs, uh, which allow for safe riding positions, um, which have uh, an element of the aerodynamic about them. I think that's, that's probably where it'll go. Um, but I don't think that bikes in, you know, five years time are going to be specced with 30 centimeter wide handlebars, because the, the the general consumer doesn't need it. And we know that there are pros out there who just won't do it. They think it's, a, they don't like the way that their breathing feels constricted with narrow bars and things. And, and not every bike race is won by aerodynamics. So if you're going uphill and you're on a, you know, I mean, we make a track bar that's 30 centimeters at the hoods, right? And if you're, if you're going uphill on one of those, and you're trying to like, you know, out sprint someone on the hoods, then maybe that isn't the right decision for a rider who's six foot eight or whatever you know so so probably it's probably the right thing for a smaller rider um but uh but there'll be there'll be reasons as to why it'll take a while to get traction on stuff like that
2: i really want to thank xavier for his time it was a fascinating conversation i had with him uh, sort of guy i could hang out with for a very very long time and i'm sure you'll hear him on this podcast again in the future but now it's time to speak to another aerodynamics specialist. He's a specialist in a lot of things, but aerodynamics is one of the main ones. It's Dan Bigham. He's got a new book out called Start at the End, and I uh, read it a few days ago. I very much enjoyed it, gave me a good insight into Dan's way of thinking. And that's the thing that really fascinates me about people like Dan, is the the different way that they think from us regular folk. Um, When I spoke to Dan, wonders of modern technology, he was in a car parked outside the velodrome in Copenhagen. Dan's out there working with the Danish track team ahead of the Olympics, and I asked him how they were getting on.
0: Yeah, they're going well. It's been fun, actually, because I've been in the B team, so I've been on track as well. It must be pretty painful,
2: like, being a rider like yourself, but then sometimes just having to stand on the
0: sidelines. I don't know how I'd be able to compartmentalise that. It's... i kind of been through it before, actually, to be honest, back in twenty. 14, 15, 16 actually. I I worked for um, a company consulting for Olympic teams. So I was helping Olympic athletes previously, mostly in the world of athletics and and swimming. But nonetheless, that was what made me jump into trying to be a cyclist because I wanted that same attention, but to myself. Uh, So I've kind of come full circle. It is a bit frustrating because I can't obviously go to the Olympics. I'm not getting selected for Great Britain. Uh, i'm happy to talk about the the reasons and my thoughts behind all that but nonetheless um yes yeah, it is annoying but equally it's quite fun to help others and it's nice to see them achieve pretty awesome results off the back of it all
2: i mean is i is that door closed for you now with sort of with gb have you, i mean have you have you given up on that or are you still you know chasing uh, you know a spot, spot on a team?
0: uh i'm not chasing one for tokyo um
2: of course, for Tokyo,
0: yeah, it's a I'm little bit too try- close. I yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I try. I'm trying to say PC and what I say. Um, yeah, I don't think I fit in with their environment and their culture as things currently are with the staff who are there, um, which. Yeah, it is what it is. I'm, I'm not happy. I'm not fussed about it in the short term. I've um, what's, what's it? I've backed my horse um, and I'm going to Tokyo with, to, with Denmark. Okay, obviously in an engineering capacity, maybe in the future. Paris, then that could be an opportunity. But um, we'll wait and see, see how things progress over the next six months, 12 months and just take things as they come. I've got my own goals and my own ambitions as an individual for the time being and happy to keep on targeting those.
2: So other than other than um, you know working with Denmark then, so you've got a month with Denmark. What else are you uh, what are you up to at the moment? Um, I mean, I, I've heard that there might be an hour record. This is what I, this is what I'm sort of digging at. I have heard there might be an hour record attempt in the, in the pipeline. Is that is that true? Is that happening?
0: Ah, uh, it's definitely true. It's been on the cards for some time. It was a bit of a project, basically since since COVID kicked off, because team pursuit couldn't be a thing, and with the UCI regulation changes, it made sense to to be selfish once. So I I spent a lot of time prepping for it last year, and the (laughs) the plan was to have a go this this winter, and then sort of early into well, it was January, then February, and lockdowns and travel restrictions just meant it was too hard to put on, at least not where I wanted to put it on. So uh, I mean, then we pushed it back to April. It was literally planned to be this this next week, and then just at the start of April, one of the injuries that I've had for a while, I've got two bulging discs in my back, um, came out to to bite me. So I was laying horizontal for six days or something, not being able to stand up, which kind of put paid to any preparation for, for doing it in this block. So I think it's more likely I'll, I'll attempt it uh, at the back end of the season alongside my my partner, Joss. So she's keen for it as well and has been quite successful. I mean, um, we haven't announced it as such, but she had a, a good practice run where she she rode further than the current record, if that means anything. Okay. Well, do you know what? It's funny. I was talking to Hutch,
2: Dr. Hutch yesterday and he actually, he told me a little bit about this. Um, I don't know where he'd got wind of it from. But um, yeah, it sounded like both of you went pretty fast. A little, little late night trip into a velodrome. Is that, is that the story?
0: Yeah. Uh, try not to discuss the finer details of it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it was just um, just a, a data collection run basically. We learned a huge amount from it. It was more of a science experiment than a, than a practice run, I guess, because no one's really documented what goes on in an hour. Like when you'd really log everything of core temp, heart rate, power, aero, muscle EMG, biomechanical, pacing, the whole lot, just all logged for both of us. Uh, it's quite a bit. I mean, Medi described it as sports science porn, which probably isn't too wrong. Uh, So from that itself, we've we've learned a huge amount and it was a good thing to do. And we know going forward that uh, there's a bit more low-hanging fruit that we can pick and optimize towards doing the, the actual attempt.
2: Well, I mean, so it strikes me that you are someone at the moment who is being pulled in a lot of different directions. You know, having read the book, I know you've worked with you know UK Athletics. Obviously, you've still got goals as a rider. you are still, you know, you're working with 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 the Denmark national team on the Team Pursuit and stuff like that. Um, I, I, like, it must be difficult being pulled in those directions. But I guess for you, for maybe even frustratingly, there's, there's probably more opportunities on the engineering sort of guru side of things and you know I could see more branches on that side of things than I can as a cyclist I, I mean that must be kind of frustrating but also super rewarding at the same time
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> where do we start on that it, it is and it, it's something I wrote about in start at the end that you you should should write a list of all the things you want to achieve and focus on the top few and bin the rest off because they just distract they get they get in the way and they they make life hard and i struggle with that i definitely do because i enjoy being involved in so many different things the the variety is quite enjoyable for me to have a bit on the sort of female world tour the male world tour the track my own ambitions the engineering equipment development there's so many fun things and you can't do it all and i guess I, i look at others and social media is the worst for it isn't it that you see all the things that everyone else is doing you're like oh i'll do a bit of that and then suddenly you're like i don't have time for that uh probably shouldn't have got involved in that project uh but you, you are right but then equally i can only be an athlete for a short amount of time so i'm doing my best in the meantime to to achieve what i want to achieve for my own personal ambitions whilst also spinning all those engineering plates in the background because i could be an engineer till the day I die, really, um, as long as my brain still works and I can tap away on a keyboard, then I'm, I'm all good to, to be a bit of a nerd. But I can't ride my bike when I'm 70 or 80. At least not at this level.
2: It's funny. You know, I was, I, was, I was when I was sort of asking that question. I was kind of searching around. I ended up calling. I, I sort of stumbled upon engineer and called you that. But like, it is difficult. I don't actually know what to call what you do. It's it's so new and so varied. I, I haven't even got a term for it.
0: Uh, we discussed this yesterday, actually, here at, at Denmark, of what do we call each other? Because we don't have traditional job titles. It's, it's quite informal, I guess, in that way. But it is so varied. People say I'm an aerodynamicist, which I guess by trade, maybe, or also an engineer. But I also do so many other aspects within within sport that, I don't know, maybe performance engineer covers off a lot of it. But it, yeah, it is. It's very broad. It's very varied. You need to have a lot of different tools in your tool bag because you can't just pigeonhole yourself into being oh that guy who just does aero testing, or that guy who just does CAD design on a computer, or the guy who just makes spreadsheets. You need to be able to to do all.
2: Well, let's let's go, let's start with so your book starts at the end. I, I've 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 read it uh, yesterday, and um, it's all about reverse engineering. So, so I mean, in your words, tell me about what reverse
0: engineering is. <laughs> So it's, it's taking an end goal, whatever that might be. Uh, for us, it was pretty simple originally back in the day was to, to go and win nationals. What does it take to win the national team pursuit? It's, it's breaking that down. So how do you, how do you go and achieve it? So what does it take from a power perspective, from an equipment perspective, from an execution perspective? Just simply what time was it going to be that is going to win that? And then from there, you can sort of pull that apart into smaller and smaller components. You can then assess what you've got. So what assets you have for us, we had four riders, uh, which in a way is, is quite nice. It forces your hand to optimize around those and you don't have to cast your net far and wide like an NGB. You've got to figure out what strengths they've got, what weaknesses they've got, uh, and then start to build that team around it. So pra- what practices, what execution strategies, uh, build the environment as well that you want, develop all the tools that you need. So for us, we we're obviously pretty engineering, nerdy, science kind of focused. So we we're doing a lot more on the, basically measuring all the different aspects of performance that we thought were important to achieve that end goal. So from an aero perspective, it's basically power and CDA and draft efficiency, but on the physiology side, it was critical power, anaerobic work capacity, uh, and a few other little things on the physiology. Uh, putting those into into practice, building some good models, putting the plan into motion of, of what we wanted to, to, to do, uh, controlling that environment the whole time. So we wanted to wanted to make sure we stayed on track um, and just having a good plan around it all to, to ensure that actually did come together because often you can get carried away in in it. So having a good solid plan was was worthwhile, but also being flexible around it. We went around pulling in a lot of very intelligent people. We knew that we didn't know everything. And I think that was quite a strength of ours to accept that there were some gaping holes in our knowledge and that a lot more, a lot of people with a lot more knowledge around those than than we could ever dream of having. So. Bringing those with us, uh, making sure that they felt valued and and could gain from from the whole experience itself, um, and then actually when you're when you're going through it, accepting that things are going to have to change on the fly. We obviously had a bit of a, uh, a watershed moment or a lesson in our first World Cup with Tipper not performing to the level we'd hoped or wanted, but from that actually came a huge amount of growth. We we really became critical of that and, and said, Okay, well, this was our plan, this is how we were going to do it. But actually in practice, it didn't go out that way. And that's often the way that plans fall apart um when they face the enemy. But uh we we came out of it with 40 something things to improve and then could sort of put those in place towards our, our future plans and then just keep going through that process really for every next step, every goal, every season to to figure out what we needed to do at the end and Obviously, all those steps along the way can grow and become bigger. You have access to to more tools, more assets, more people, more knowledge, uh, and it can just grow and grow and grow. And hopefully, by the end of it, you start to achieve some some pretty awesome stuff.
2: I don't know if you've thought about it, but you know the the story of Team KGF. It's 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 like it's it's, it's practically a perfect story. It's like literally, it's got all the elements. You know, the underdog, the triumph over adversity. You know, the little man sort of thing. I'm just has anyone approached you and thought this is a movie? I mean, it must have happened, surely.
0: <laughs> yeah, it uh it's been discussed actually. Um that's it. Yeah. I, I, I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> so it is possible. Uh it's it's something that's yeah, in I guess in the works, it's it's nothing solid yet. But um yeah, it, I think it'd be a, a great one to tell. We obviously had the original documentary that James Paul put together and I love watching that. Uh just uh just to remember how everything went it's obviously so clear when someone's sitting there recording it and just some great memories and great moments but the, there's so much more that went on especially after that first season it was um, a big growth phase and it, as a team who what by it, became so much bigger than what KGF was and so much interesting stuff went on so yeah hopefully it does become a film but uh, we'll wait and see on that one. <laughs> Who plays Dan Biggum in the movie? Oh God, I'm terrible with actors. I wouldn't, even, I couldn't even name one off the top of my head.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, well, back back to the book. Like I said I really enjoyed reading it. Um, what I liked a lot about it is you gave a lot of, um, you told a lot of interesting stories, but not from the world of cycling. And you know, cycling can be we all know it can be a bit insular you know just cycling does it this way so we'll do it this way but a couple of the stories that really sprung out and really illustrated your point um well the first one was roger bannister mm-hmm. i mean so, so tell me that story. i mean you know the story where people think they know the story of the, the four minute
0: mile but how did you apply that to to, to your reverse engineering to, well, to start at the end so <laughs> i think roger bannister is quite a fun one because i used to train on that track and every so i, I used to be a well a runner cross triathlete before i turned to cycling And it was every single session, two, three times a week, you just see that, that four, or just some 359 point, whatever it was, four, six, four, six, six, four, uh, just hanging up there. So it was was quite, um, I guess, a motivating thing for me to just see that those kind of barriers exist and you can break them down just by approaching it with what you have. And he was, he was very limited, but also very intelligent with his approach. He was, I guess the classic reverse engineer that he knew he had limited time he was studying medicine and he could only focus on the things that he could control he everything else that was outside of his control he didn't have to worry about so he he did a lot more intensity he read a lot more as well around around the physiology side and became very educated that actually meant in practice he was applying stuff that was decades ahead of his time from a physiology perspective and in the end obviously it resulted in in great results and people were critical of him for it you can't train like that you can't you're not going to perform. You're doing things wrong. But all that matters is the end goal, the result, right? And he achieved it. And since then, people have, have followed his path. And yes, they've gone faster. There'll be the better athletes than Roger Bannister. But they weren't the people, the first two, who broke that four-minute. And um, I guess that was quite inspiring for us. And um, we haven't broke the four-minute for the IP yet. But, I mean, Ashton is is working hard towards that. He's still pretty focused on on trying to achieve that. So I think that's that's still a possibility for the team.
2: Is that the like? So you know, the, the kind of there's this sort of ceiling that you have to burst through. That was the four minute mile. What would the what would the cycling equivalent then? Would it, would it be that four minute IP? What 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 is it? What would it be?
0: Probably yeah, uh, the four minute IP for a team pursuit. Uh, <laughs> good question. Originally it was the three fifty, which well, firstly the these things these things seem to move so rapidly. You know, they, they come down so fast. Yeah, and if anything, it's quite arbitrary. So four minutes is just well, when you look at it in time, it's a certain amount of, how do we measure time nowadays? It's a quartz crystal and moving an electron between certain levels. It's something totally arbitrary. It means nothing, but it's just, people place such huge value on this number and it doesn't mean anything really in the grand scheme of things, but um, because of it, it's such a psychological barrier. And then 410 was the first one in the IP that, that hadn't been broken until Ashton went up to altitude a couple of years ago and dropped out a 407, whatever it was. And then suddenly people go, oh, that's, that's achievable. And in a matter of 18 months, it's down to 401 at sea level. You think crazy that nobody can break 410. And then in a matter of two years, you've got 20 riders in the world who can do it. It's, uh, it's definitely a mental barrier more than anything, but we're lucky in, in cycling that science has really come to the fore and that's why people are getting fast very quickly.
2: Are you finding, are you finding it easier or are you finding cycling is more open now to, to, to your ideas?
0: Starting to be. I I definitely still get criticism and. I think if anything, that's that's a good marker that you're probably doing the right thing. If people are getting uh, wound up about your new ideas of oh, it's against it's against the the way of cycling. It's it's not how things should be done. Um, it's, if anything, that's that's a good thing. If if people are getting stuck in the old dogmatic ways of it's always been done like this, then it just leaves a, a gaping wide hole for performance that I can drive a bus through and, and find some gains that mean that I'm better than all my competitors. So. Um, by all means cycling, if he can continue in the same old way, then it's all the better for me and, and the people that I work with.
2: So, 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 I, was, so I was talking to uh Hutch yesterday, we, we, we were just having a bit of a conversation about positioning and sort of these um these sort of watershed moments in cycling when there seems to be a big paradigm shift. And one of the ones we were talking about was when Moser did the hour record, and that is an important thing in your book, isn't it? Moses, T- tell us about Moser's record and why it was so
0: important and what he did. Uh, he just <laughs> he did some pretty outrageous stuff full stop um but taking it to altitude was uh was uh the big thing that they it's just interesting how things have changed from then so he uh going to altitude was just such a step forward that he understood not probably not in the the finer details that we do nowadays but just how much of a, of a benefit that was and that he placed such amount of importance on on that aero side yes they they couldn't go and do everything that we can do nowadays but by identifying where the improvements have come look at what assets they had so what velodromes are currently available he doesn't have a huge budget he can't go and build a velodrome on top of everest or well, everest wouldn't be optimal but we can come to that <laughs> um and and just said yeah let, let, that's that's the optimal for me i'm going to train towards it and then um he really focused towards basically just Optimizing everything that he had in his control for for that single hour and to execute altitude and did something pretty pretty outrageous, mm-hmm. uh, pretty cool, and has kind of set the barrier or the, the marker for a lot of our records since then. To try and even come close to, to what he did was yeah quite an, quite an achievement in itself. Just uh, over the years that followed, and it took people like Boardman to really move it on a bit. So there was some lull after it, and that's often the way when people get a head start on on these things that. It takes, takes a good amount of time. People have to step back, appreciate what was achieved, and then you have to wait for the science, the knowledge, the understanding, and sometimes the physiology to then catch back up for them to have another bite of the cherry and see if it can be done.
2: The Moser Hour record attempt is something that comes up again and again when we're talking about the, the modernisation of cycling and the, um, the, the focus on, on, on aerodynamics and, and modern technology. And it was something that
3: I spoke to Hutch about as well. The, the key, the key date, if you want to do the history of aerodynamics and cycling, is uh, Francesco Moser's record in 1984.
2: And why is um, that key? Why is that key that one?
3: Well, the record was held by Eddie Merckx, who set it on. You might, you might even have yeah. seen the bike somewhere at Tour's bike shows. It's Orange, a very old, fa- old-fashioned-looking orange track That's, bike. Is skinny... He,
2: he rode in Mexico, didn't he? Is Mexico? Yeah, he rode yeah. that
3: in Mexico, as as did Moser. Um, but it's kind of orange. Um, Reynolds round, it's probably not Reynolds, it'll be Columbus because it was. Um, Colmago built it, but it's kind of round tubes, spooky wheels, drop handlebars. Yeah, It looks like the bike you go If you go to Manchester Velodrome for a taster session, they hire you a bike that looks just like it. Um, Francesco Moser turned up in with this chrome space age curvy bike, the low pro handlebars, and the disc wheels. I mean disc wheels. I think the Soviet Union and the and the, and the Eastern, Euro, Eastern European and the East Germans had used disc wheels once or twice at, at, at pursuits and things, but he turned up with these big shiny disc wheels on this bizarre shaped bike. I mean, the bike is probably not in itself all that aerodynamic, it just but it looked fantastic. Um, and a little cotton cap, and he tested a whole pile of arrow helmets as well, including arrow helmets that covered his whole head and filled in the bit between his chin and so on. And he was t- he tested stuff in wind tunnels for that, um, which is just about the first instance of that. But suddenly this was, you know, because he was a he was a Giro d'Italia winner, he was a classic star. He was he wasn't a weird Eastern European pursuiter. He was an actual Western European big star. He suddenly turned up on all this stuff smashed Merck's R record like Merckx, big big deal breaking Merck's R record. broke the record got off had a chat with his mates went back to the hotel came back two days later took another stuck another kilometer onto it and it made it look so easy um and suddenly every day to go oh right oh there's something in this and this was a you know it was a heavy bike and before he did it people were saying oh he's not going to be able to do it his bicycle weighs two kilos more than Merckx's. And yeah but on a flat track it doesn't make any difference any physicist would have told them that but that's the mythology of the common mythology of cycling so that's probably really the key to where aerodynamics started to play a big role the problem was everybody knew aerodynamics is important but nobody could measure it so even you know when i 1990s when i late 90s when i started i was at uh, cambridge university where you would think if there was anywhere in the country that people would, but even we were still sitting at the pub going, well, you see, yeah, but you put your wrists together and then the air bounces off that and goes over your head. I mean, no, it doesn't. Um, um, but that was kind of, that. that's key. And then there were your three Boardman and debris and all of that. Um, and that's really the point where it started to get much more, it became a bit more mainstream after that. Because you know, every time trialists in Britain looked at Chris Boardman, I copied him. Um apart from Graham O'Bree who came up with something better, but happily for everyone the UCI banned all that so we didn't all have to learn to ride like that and buy bikes off Graham, um, which is how otherwise life would have gone.
2: Um what I liked about the book is it kind of gives me a clearer understanding of the way you think. Because obviously you do think differently to a lot of people, but you've you've trained yourself to think like that. You know, you've you've adopted certain methods or looked at how other people work. And um one method that you talk about is the Socratic method, um uh, as embodied by Elon Musk. So I mean, t- t- I mean, so I don't expect to come across Elon Musk in a cycling book very well. It's, to call it a cycling book is probably a bit wrong, but you know, cycling is at the heart of it. But it, it's a lot more than that. But um, so. Talk me through the Socratic method and how Elon Musk uses it and then maybe, you know, how it can be applied to cycling.
0: <laughs> it's probably my favourite method. Uh, my my partner, Joss, always criticises me for assuming sometimes that other people are thinking the same way as me and I get carried away because, yeah, you, you, you <sighs> yeah sometimes you don't know what other people don't know. And uh, for me, I, I work obviously in environments where people are a similar level of understanding and sometimes um, it takes that knowledge to be sort of spread out and diversified for for that general base, knowledge base to, to be there. But the Socratic method anyway is it's just basically asking why until you get to that that base reason. And I love it as just a simple method to just for anybody because why and getting an honest answer and then asking why again, you can quickly deduce people's base knowledge, base understanding, base reasoning, and how they've got to their decision. And once you understand how they've got to their decision, you understand the things they've either missed or misunderstood or where their knowledge might be lacking or the assumptions they've made. And then once you know all that, there's there's so much power then you can say, oh, but you've made all these decisions and you, you ignored this, 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 and this if you address those, then you can come to an even better conclusion. And it, it's just a very useful method to, to pull that apart and to, to really get an understanding. And it's it's something that uh, back in the war was used quite quite often to say, okay, well, um, you once you get hold of the enemy's material, and I don't know if you could call cycling a war nowadays, but uh, it's, it's often the same in, in all sports. If you can get hold of what your enemy are doing and apply that Socratic method, you can quickly figure out the decisions they've made, how they've come to that and learn from those. And you don't have to make those same mistakes. You can deduce everything they've done. You can figure out where they went wrong and do it better. I think it's such a, a quick way of getting fast because everyone should learn from those mistakes. But if you have to live through that process, it can be quite painful and quite time consuming. But if it, if you can just learn from everyone else's mistakes and do it very quickly, then uh, you can get, get to the top in a, in a much quicker way. Um, a couple of things I, I learned from the book, I mean, I knew about your work
2: with um, with Canyon SRAM, um, and you explained that brilliantly in the, in the book, but I didn't know that you'd worked with uh, Wout van Art on time trialing as well.
0: Yeah, that was uh, another little one that came through Canyon SRAM, actually. They uh, are good friends, or at least their DS's talk a lot, and um, yeah, I, I got introduced to to Jumbo Visma a couple of years or so ago now, uh, and yeah, just, just helped Wout van Art and and a little bit with Roglic, and then a little bit towards their team time trial stuff and equipment selection, pacing strategies, that kind of thing. They just uh, they'd seen what we'd done on the track with KGF and, and who bought bike, and they wanted a little bit of little bit of action. And I've stayed involved since then. It's a bit more light touch than my work with Canyon Schramm and, and Denmark, uh, but nonetheless, it's enjoyable to be able to have a little bit of influence with the World Tour.
2: But I mean, you you came up with some pretty interesting solutions with, with Wow. I mean, you, you talk about sort of you know in previous time trialing and, and finding a way to do it. You know, you weren't in a in a velodrome, you weren't really in a controlled situation, so you were you basically you just sent him down a descent. That's <laughs> that's what I got
0: right. You are not far wrong, and it was just one of those of assessing what assets and tools we've got. We we know the environment we're in. Wow, has got to go to. I can't remember, was it Tour de France? Either way, he was on an altitude camp and we didn't have any options whatsoever to go to a velodrome, to go to a wind tunnel, but we knew that we we definitely need to get working on his aero pretty soon. So it's a case of just using the physics in your favour. Okay, well, we can't go to any of those, but if we can get him to literally coast down a hill. So coast down method's actually pretty popular back for the old school cyclists who used to measure how far they'd roll. Um, but it, it worked. It worked within what we had. We we had those limitations around us, but it meant that with a little bit of smart application of science and a, f- and a few sensors, we could get some really good aero data just literally rolling down a mountain in the Sierra Nevada mountain range in southern Spain. And it, it worked. We, we made some big leaps forward in his aero uh, in a matter of about three hours. So we had a team car that would literally follow him a few hundred meters behind down the mountain, pick him up at the bottom, drive him back up, make a change and repeat. And just measuring air density, his his mass for his runs, um, and how far he was ridden and his speed, it was it was pretty simple. And uh, yeah, he was he was happy. We were happy, uh, and it meant I got a bit of altitude as well. So I was up there in first experience of going to two and a half thousand meters, which was yeah something special. It's it's different. Um, yeah, enjoyed that one.
2: One uh, one final question. I want to ask you. So um, a lot of this, a lot of your strategy revolves around you know. Um, understanding the event or understanding the technology, and, you know, taking it to, to pieces and working backwards. But you worked with Canyon SRAM um, through lockdown when everyone turned towards e racing, it was the only option. Now we have so limited understanding of
0: that at the moment. How did you approach that? I enjoyed that one. For many reasons, it obviously meant had a purpose, and when there wasn't racing, you could get your teeth stuck into something. But actually, it's just another area of optimization that you can look at the end goal. Okay, actually, what matters is p- is pure power. You can ignore aerodynamics because, well, actually, we can come to that in a sec. But you can ignore in real world aerodynamics. You can ignore all that kind of stuff. You just need watts, and you need to get as light as you can for for that given race. So things like drivetrain efficiency, cooling. Uh, warm-up strategies all that kind of stuff came to the fore because it was it's so critical cooling was was massive and we went through a lot around that and with sis at the time releasing their menthol stuff i mean people have mm. said oh it's it's it means nothing it's, it's irrelevant actually there's so many really good studies that show how important menthol is and it's perceptive and it, it makes a difference uh, but then also looking at the equipment so in, in zwift Uh, you can do aero testing, which is not not many people really realise.
2: I didn't know this. I did not know this. God, tell me about this. So, effectively, the
0: the, the laws of physics in Zwift are give or take the same as in the real world, especially when you ride by yourself. Uh, They're classically known as the Martin equations, which came out in the 90s, and you can basically ride a course by yourself with two different bits of equipment, I don't know, change your bike, change your wheels, whatever, Uh, and you can output uh, a system mass a crr and a cda so if you assume that two of them are constant then your cda is going to change and you can figure out for a given course what the fastest bit of kit is uh, and we were doing that <laughs> for different courses um, so even like uh, on zwift in in watopia you've got some gravel sections and you can figure out how much faster a gravel bike is or a mountain bike versus a road bike and it was pretty significant it was actually quite scary so uh yeah we were pretty lucky that we did do that and then other things as well, using Discord, talking to the channel, having certain strategies around all that and how certain riders might suit, suit different courses. Um, yeah, just uh, another chance to to reverse engineer the the end goal. I love that. I
2: love that. <laughs> Aero testing in a virtual world. I, I had no idea. It's brilliant, that. Um OK, so you mentioned at the start, you know, um, you're with, uh, with Denmark for the, for the next month or so. And obviously, you know, the Olympics being the big goal. Uh, will you be out
0: in Tokyo? Is that, is that part of the plan? Uh, probably not. I'll be on Tokyo time, but I will be probably based in Denmark. So we'll have a bit of a, a race control back in, in Denmark. And then it's pretty limited, actually, the amount of staff we're allowed out with all the COVID restrictions. And also, we don't particularly need a huge amount. The work's been done by the time they get there touch wood anyway. And uh, it's just down to, to the riders and the soigneurs and the mechanic to just keep things on the on the straight and narrow. Um, hopefully by then it's just an executing a, a plan and uh, fingers crossed things won't come up that we need to, to change that plan, at least not too heavily.
2: And obviously that, t- so that takes us to sort of midway through the summer. Um, what's beyond that then? We don't, we, you know, we've got an hour record attempt is going to happen at some point what's what's beyond that do
0: we even know we have any idea oh I wish I knew for myself personally I want to have a good hit out at some stage races and time trials this year it's something I've talked about before that I knew I committed a lot of my life to the track team and that sacrificed some of my own personal performance it meant the team went faster and I wouldn't change that for for a minute but it did mean as an athlete I probably wasn't achieving my maximal through all the other additional plates that I had to spin running the team so now I'm trying to be a bit more selfish trying to achieve some my own personal goals so individual time trials I'd love to be both in the Euros and the Worlds team we've got the Tour of Britain that probably has a team time trial in so uh big focus on that with Ripple World Tights, see if we can can rumble the big dogs uh but beyond that who knows Commonwealth Games is on the horizon as well in Birmingham that's only a year or so away now so I'd love to uh, put, put to bed all the demons I had from, from Commonwealth Games in Australia and put in a good ride in, in Birmingham and see see what I can truly achieve there
2: I was just wondering if you had gone back through your family tree and sort of looked for some Danish heritage anywhere
0: <laughs> I haven't got Danish I've got a little bit of Scottish but unfortunately not enough that it meets the criteria um, but anyway who knows by I don't know four years time Scotland might be an independent nation and God, oh, <laughs> who knows who knows
2: thanks to Dan Bigham I just love talking to Dan. He's such an interesting guy. His book, Start at the End, is out now. Thanks also to Dr. Hutch and to Xavier Disley from AeroCoach. Again, people I absolutely love talking to. Uh, before I leave you, um, another few bits of kit that I've been trying out recently, they I've got to say are excellent. I've got my cycling podcast tea towel for Friends of the Cycling Podcast. Uh, beautiful, beautiful design that arrived in the post. I wasn't expecting that. Actually, it's very, very nice. Um, with uh, it's got a lot of uh, famous cycling podcast quotes from uh, the main three guys: from from Daniel, from Lionel, from Richard, but also from from Francois. It's uh, fantastic. In fact, it's so nice that I don't think I'm going to use it on my dishes. I'm going to frame it. I also got this um, a lovely um, casquette, uh for Friends of the Cycling Podcast. Also, if you want to check out those products in the New Look Cycling Podcast shop, do that. And I'd also recommend becoming a a friend of the Cycling Podcast if you're not already. I've been so many great friend specials this year. So do, do sign up to that. And I'll see you guys next month. Take it easy.